Um, and, uh, and so I'm telling the story about this invalid guy who's healed. And then I'm talking about how, you know, he, he says to Jesus, you know, he wants to be healed. Well, after church, um, I was in my office. I was making my way. And somebody come up to me and they said, Pastor Justin. I said, yeah. And they said, is it possible that you were mixing a couple of biblical accounts together? And I said, uh, maybe. I don't know. Let's, so we had this conversation. We got to looking. And I want you to know I did. I actually combined the elements of the, the passage I referenced in John 5, uh, where Jesus heals uh, the, the, the man who was by the pool of Bethsaida, not the pool of Siloam, next to the pool of Bethsaida, right? And so Jesus, he, he, he heals this man. But then also what I was also bringing into that was from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus heals a man named Bartimaeus. And again, I want you to understand at the end of the day, it wasn't a matter that necessarily we would say was of great significance. In both situations, what we saw was God in the flesh intervene in the lives of individuals, right? And, and in one case, uh, with, with the, the man next to the pool of Bethsaida where he was healed, uh, Jesus just said to him, will, will you be made well? And Jesus heals him. And then in the, the account of Bartimaeus, uh, when Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming, he cries out. We see in verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he has this conversation with Jesus does with Bartimaeus, and ultimately he's healed. And so I just say that because if any of you were thinking last week, man, you know, I, I'm not sure about those details. Maybe it didn't cross any of your minds at all. And if it didn't, just uh, take from this that I believe biblical integrity is important. And though I, in my telling of the story, kind of put two together, in both instances, the application was true, right? Jesus was intervening in the lives of people. Um, but I, if you've been around very long, you know that I absolutely stand and fall on the authority and the truth of this right here. And I believe in order for my standing and my falling to continue to be uh, right before you and before the Lord, I have to be completely transparent. And so while it wasn't a matter of great significance, I don't believe, nonetheless, I want you to understand, I recognize, uh, thanks to uh, an individual who asked me about it, and we looked at it and said, oh my goodness, I did, I put those together. Um, it's our desire here, and I, don't, I say this for me because I'm the one up here talking, but I know our leadership as a whole, it is our desire to be right in accords with God's word and communicate it in a way that is right before God and his word. So if you had any thoughts about that, uh, please know that is my clarification I did. I mixed those two stories together. Um, but uh, nonetheless, here we are. And we're going to continue our conversation this morning uh, by examining the insignificance of Christmas. And again, I want to remind you that's not insignificance in saying that Christmas is an insignificant matter, but by examining some of the individuals who are a part of our Christmas narrative who really are in and of themselves insignificant people, right? They're, they're not great and mighty. Um, they're not of tremendous stature, but nonetheless, we see them play a vital role in this Christmas narrative, and last week we looked together at, in Luke chapter 1, we looked at Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. And I was going to tell you guys a, a little funny story last week that I forgot to tell you. Um, just, I say this as a plug for our children's church. 
um, a couple weeks back, my wife had been teaching a, a, a Sunday school class with some of the, the little kids, the youngest class, and some of the, the other kids had been helping her, some of the older kids, the high school kids, and they were talking about something one day, and one of the high school kids just innocently said, wait, is that the guy who was, you know, deaf or mute? I don't remember exactly what adjective they used. Is that the guy that was, you know, deaf or couldn't talk for like nine months? And they were talking about Abraham. And so they sat there for a minute, they got talking, and Jojo, who's six, okay, pipes up and says, no, that was John the Baptist's dad. Now, here's the reason I tell you that, okay, because your kids are listening in children's church, number one, and number two, they're hearing the word of God in children's church. So let that be an encouragement to you. If, you know, maybe you don't want to send your kids, maybe you do send your kids. If you do send them, they're hearing God's word. And if you don't send them, uh, maybe, maybe that could give you a little more comfort or reason to be willing to send them. But they're learning. And they're hearing God's word. And, and so what we're going to unpack this morning is this reality of learning God's word, hearing God's word, and, and obeying it, right? And so we continue our examination of people who, in an earthly sense, are insignificant. Now, one thing that I want to just kind of put out in front of us as we begin, and this may be something, again, that hasn't crossed any of your minds, but somebody who would be critical of God's word, they, they might ask some of these questions. And one of the things that I just want to give you a couple observations to very quick are some of the differences between the Christmas narrative in Matthew's gospel that we'll look at today and in Luke's gospel that we looked at last week. Why are they different? Right? When we read Matthew and we read Luke, we don't see the same people. In some cases we do, but we don't see all the same people. We don't see all of the same details. Why is that? And I think this is an important question to quickly look at because a lot of people would say God's word is unreliable because when we look at the Christmas account just from two gospels, it's not consistent. They don't agree. So I don't know if I can believe God's word. And, and I would submit to you that when we celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate the reality of God becoming flesh and dwelling among mankind, the a willingness and the ability to trust God's word is absolutely paramount. Because if you're familiar with God's word, then you know that God's word would tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, right? Like, this is supernatural. These are supernatural acts of God that require faith to believe, and so trusting God's word absolutely matters. And so why such a difference in the details? I want to start with this perspective um, because, as we said last week, oftentimes unanswered questions, doubt becomes unbelief. If I stew in my doubt or I stew in the questions that I don't have answers to, they often, often it becomes unbelief. But also I want to start here because I think that there's a couple easy points of clarification. First of all, I want you to understand, when we look at Matthew's gospel and we look at Luke's gospel, the gospel writers, they were not the same. They were two different people. And therefore, the details that they give are not the same, and they serve to advance uh, the, the narrative of which they're writing or the, the larger narrative that they're compiling. All right, And so just to very quickly illustrate this and make sense, if you were to account the events of last night at our house at about 6 o'clock when our dryer made some catastrophic noise and I don't know what the heck it was doing, if you ask me and then you ask Jenna, we might highlight different details. 
We might say, well, it had been running for a little while, and this happened, and then I took it apart, and this happened. And then you might ask Jen, and she said, well, I heard it. It made this sound, and, and, and then, you know, we concluded that maybe it was this. Now, that doesn't mean because what we shared was different that it's at odds with each other. Okay, it, it means the perspective that was given when the question was asked about the dryer randomly, seemingly breaking and being, you know, no longer usable was, had two different perspectives as it took place. So it doesn't mean that the gospel writers are wrong or that they are at odds with each other. But what we got to understand is that Luke and Matthew wrote to accomplish two totally different purposes, Therefore, some of the details that were really important to Matthew weren't as important to Luke, all right? So the fact that we see some differences, that we see different uh, individuals highlighted, doesn't have to be a deterrent. You see, Matthew, he was a Jewish man who wrote to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Messiah according to the Old Testament prophecies and that he was qualified according to the promise of Abraham as the son of David. This is the purpose at which Matthew wrote. That's why his gospel begins with what? A genealogy, tracing back the lineage of Jesus. In the case of Luke, Luke was a Gentile doctor, so that means he was not Jewish. He wasn't writing to a Jewish audience He was writing, well, I should say not just to a Jewish audience. Luke is writing to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised to Jews and Gentiles, okay? And so we have different uh, focuses or different intentions. On top of this, as we've noted already, some of the differences come because Matthew's account of the birth is noted from Joseph's perspective. We'll look at this morning. And Luke's are from Mary's perspective, so again, different perspectives might, might, uh, might point us to different details, but the conclusions, the results, they were still the same. So the Gospels are not at odds with one another. There's nothing in them, you should know, that contradicts the other one. Nothing in the birth narrative of Jesus that we find in Luke's Gospel contradicts what we find of the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And vice versa. They're just different details. Okay? So both these two of the four Gospels include the narrative of the birth of Christ. They focus on different aspects. It doesn't mean they're unreliable in any way. And today I want to look together at a Jewish man. Sometimes you try to church things up, you know, say it in an eloquent way. But I want you to understand, as we begin to look at Joseph this morning, we're going to read our text in just a minute. This is a Jewish man whose world was rocked by God. Joseph was going this way. Things were good. He was betrothed to a woman that he loved dearly. They were going to be married. Everything was great. Just as they would desire, they being him and Mary, would desire it to be. And his world was rocked unfathomable became reality. And it was a place where, as we're going to look at Joseph and see, that obedience trumped logic or reason. This is what I think, this is what I like, this is what I want. That's trumped by obedience to what God reveals. So let's look together at Matthew chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we look this morning into your word and we see you intervening once again. God, we see you acting supernaturally. And God, we also see obedience. And God, I pray this morning, not in a fanciful way, but just in a real practical way, God, that your people would desire obedience. That, that God, we would desire to hear from you And in hearing from you, we would desire to be obedient to that which we hear. Father, we thank you that you have spoken uh, not in a way that is unclear or in a way that is ambiguous. But God, you have spoken in in a way that is absolutely clear and transparent. You have spoken through your son, Jesus. You have spoken through your word. So Father, I pray this morning that you would help our hearts and our minds to be in tune with your word. God, and that we would seek to hear from you through it today and that our hearts and our lives would be changed because of our opportunity to gather together to celebrate the coming of the Savior and to look into your word, God, and to just see the fact that you work then. God, you work now. And uh, we just pray, God, that you would give us understanding and insight. And we pray that you'd work mightily and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to do similar to what we did last week, right? I kind of I just want to walk through these few verses, and then we'll finish by drawing some application, right? And I know if you've been here for um, you know any length of time, you know typically we say, okay, here's point one, here's point two, here's point three. Uh, but I have found myself in looking at narrative passages when we consider the birth narrative of Christ. It, it to me it feels more like okay, we read this account, and now what do we draw from this account? And and so. You know, if, if, you've, if you've gotten used to the fact that we say, okay, here's a point and some application partway through, and here's another point and some application partway through, um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to convey helpful information and then draw application at the end. So stick with me. When we get to the point where we start drawing application, that's not the end of point one, you know, 25 or 30 minutes from now. When I ponder, when I think about this account of Joseph and the conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, if, if I'm honest, it's a mind-blowing situation. It defies logic and it defies reason. It defies human understanding, really. The Holy Spirit has impregnated a woman who has not known a man, so she's a virgin, the Bible tells us. The Holy Spirit has impregnated this woman, right? That's pretty magnificent. It's pretty mind-blowing. But not only has the Holy Spirit impregnated this woman, and that's mind-blowing, in the fact that this woman has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, is that the, what she's been impregnated with, the baby, is God. 
Literally, it's the means whereby God will become a human, will take on flesh, and will live amongst men. This defies logic and reason. And and as I think of passages of Scripture, narratives often that defy logic and reason, I also think of Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9, the writer says to us, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I want you to understand this morning as we begin that God often works in ways that are outside of our ability to know and understand completely. Not one of us in this room can raise our hand and say, we know why God is working the way that he is in our lives, no matter what that way is. God works outside of our understanding most often. He does things that we don't understand. He does things that are different than how we would do them. But the prophet Isaiah tells us that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God doesn't function according to our understanding. And this is exactly what we see unfolding in the case of Joseph here in Matthew chapter 1. He doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend exactly. But one of the things that's incredibly important as we consider the the birth narrative of Christ, one of the things that's vitally important when we consider some of these realities of God's word that are, are supernatural is that the essence of faith is believing what you don't see. The essence of faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is believing in the things that you don't yet know for sure. You have not realized for yourself. And God works this way all throughout his word and in our lives. Because God does not live and function entirely in the realm of human comprehension. But know this. As much as we may not understand exactly what God is doing or why God is doing something the way that he is doing it, God never functions or operates in any way that contradicts what is revealed in his word. Okay? And I want to stress that because there's a tendency, I think, in, in the church today to try to read into a lot of things and to try to draw a lot of conclusions. And sometimes what's happening is when we encounter things that we don't understand, we're drawing conclusions that are contrary to what's clearly revealed in God's word. That's not of God. God does not function in such a way that just because we don't understand something or it's outside of our understanding that the conclusions we draw are different than what he has already revealed in his word. So God does nothing that contradicts his word. And if you think that God may be doing something in your life that is magnificent, I want you to praise God. I would praise God with you. But if what you look at, maybe something great is happening in your life or you perceive something that's happening in your life to be great and you look at it and you weigh it against God's word and it's contrary to God's word, I want you to know something this morning. That's not of God. And I just want this to serve as a word of caution. I mean, there is so much out there that exists today in which people in the name of God and Christ and all that is good are trying to bring people in. And they're trying to to suck people into whatever it is that they're peddling. And you look very quickly and see, man, that's contrary to what God has revealed in his word. And I want you to know that that's not of God. 
Maybe, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe you think, hey, man, I'm like Joseph. I'm just kind of living this ordinary life, and, and God's faithfully keeping me upright and putting breath into my lungs, and I'm good with that. Praise God for that. But as we talk about the realm of the supernatural, and we talk about God doing things that we don't understand or we sometimes can't understand, I feel I have to offer a word of caution. Because I wish I could tell you that everybody who steps behind a pulpit and everybody that opens the word of God values integrity to his word. Everybody doesn't. And so we have to be on the guard. We have to be on the lookout and weigh what we're hearing, what we're seeing, and what we're learning against God's word. All right? And so the key... I hate to use phrases like that. That's a great example of what's hijacking the minds of followers of Christ. The key to unlocking the mystery. You guys seen all these books, right? All these articles and these sermons. But as we think about this reality of God working in our lives, in some cases supernaturally in ways that we don't understand, if we're going to understand and if we're going to be obedient to Christ in the midst of those times, there is a key for us. We have to be listening. We have to be listening. When we don't understand, when we don't know, we must listen. Dana Visniski tells the story of a Native American and his friend who were in downtown New York City. They're walking near Times Square in Manhattan. It was during the noon lunch hour and streets were filled with people. Cars were honking their horns, taxi cabs were squealing around corners, sirens were wailing, and the sounds of the city were almost deafening. Suddenly, the Native American said, I hear a cricket. His friend said, what? You must be crazy. You couldn't possibly hear a cricket in all this noise. No, I'm sure of it, the Native American said. I heard a cricket. That's crazy, said his friend. The Native American listened carefully for a moment and then walked across the street to a big cement planter where some shrubs were growing. He looked into the bushes beneath the branches and sure enough, he located a small cricket. His friend was utterly amazed. That's incredible, said his friend. You must have superhuman ears. No, said the Native American. My ears are no different from yours. It all depends on what you're listening for. But that can't be, said the friend. I could never hear a cricket in this noise. Yes, it's true, came the reply. It depends on what is really important to you. Here, let me show you. He reached into his pocket. He pulled out a few coins and discreetly dropped them on the sidewalk. And then, with the noise of the crowded streets still blaring in their ears, they noticed every head within 20 feet turn and look to see if the money that tinked on the pavement was theirs. See what I mean? Asked the Native American. It all depends on what's important to you. You see, listening is as vital part of life as anything else, especially for the professing follower of Christ. If those who hope in God are going to follow in obedience, then they must be listeners. Very simple, practical truth is that we cannot be obedient to that which we do not know. So we must seek to hear the details and the information that God is conveying. And our account this morning begins with a declaration of how the birth of Christ was to take place. And there are some key details very early on. We see in verse 18, the mother of Jesus was betrothed to a man named Joseph. 
Now, the best way for me to explain betrothal to you is, while it's not a complete comparison, I'll try to explain it, is that of being engaged. It was a period of time where two people had agreed upon coming together in a union and awaited the, 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 the finality of that union on their wedding day. However, there are many differences that exist between betrothal and engagement. Today, we get engaged and we spend our time planning and arranging for our big day and we work together to iron out the details and we cannot wait and and yet we have to wait with anticipation for the big day. Betrothal was a period of time, usually one year in length, where the man and the woman who were betrothed to each other demonstrated their faithfulness and fidelity to one another while having no contact. The arrangements for their eventual marriage after the betrothal period would be worked out and solidified prior to entering into the betrothal and then waiting for, like I said, generally one year for the marriage uh, to be realized. And the betrothal, much like an engagement, would be announced publicly, right? You know, everybody gets your RSVP, save the dates you guys send out there. Listen, can I just, anybody just get ready to get married? Just send invitations, right? Like, save yourself some money. Don't send out art. Don't send save the dates. Just send invitations. There's a period of time after this uh, public proclamation. And the public proclamation is important because when the betrothal is announced publicly, what happens now is the community knows that these two people are betrothed together. They are pledged to be married one to another. And betrothal was not to be broken. And, and to break a betrothal was the equivalent of divorce, right? And so you had matters of divorce in which a betrothal period could be broken. And then you had death, right? These were the two things that we see biblically about betrothal periods being broken. But I also want to say that as we think about a betrothal being broken, and on the grounds of infidelity or adultery, okay, under the, the law in which these people still lived in the first century, the adultery was actually punishable by death, by stoning. They take these individuals and they drag them out to the edge of the city and they lower them down on a cliff that's a little bit lower than them and the people would, would proceed to throw stones about this big in nature at the individual until they were crushed, they were killed. So this being betrothed is a big deal. It's, it's, is, it's as permanent as marriage is intended to be. I wish it was the case today. But as marriage is intended to be when we see it finalized today, betrothal was just as permanent when it was agreed upon. So you got these details of this woman who's betrothed to a man. They're fine details so far. A woman, she's betrothed to a man, not uncommon, and uh, they're awaiting uh, their betrothal period to end so that they can come together and, recon- and, and recognize their marriage officially. But then God presents himself in a way that only he can. We read there in verse 18 that when she was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what we know here, based on what we've looked at, is that according to these details, Mary had not had physical intercourse with any man and has not broken the vows of her betrothal with Joseph. 
And yet, the Bible tells us that she is with child. Now, following these introductory details in verse 18, we're introduced to another man, Joseph, the aforementioned in verse 18. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's a just man. And he doesn't desire that Mary would be put to shame. That is, have to bear the reproach of being with child in the midst of a betrothal period in which she's not had any contact with the man that she's betrothed to. But even worse than that, Joseph understands and knows that if he just divorces Mary and moves on about his life, he's very much opening her up to the possibility that she would be killed. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a just man. And in an attempt to protect Mary, he wants to put her away quietly. But it was also an attempt to protect himself. Great shame not only would come upon Mary, but would come upon the man who was betrothed to the woman who was now pregnant. You see, to marry Mary would be an admission publicly that they together had broken the vows of the betrothal. It would literally be Joseph telling the world around them that that baby was his. He married a woman who was with child during the betrothal period. I'm going to take her to be my wife. In a sense, admitting guilt. Admitting that he had committed this adultery as well. And so we talk about this reality of their their great shame. This was not the desire of Joseph for either of them. Clearly loves Mary clearly has a a deep compassion for her. And so we're introduced to the miraculous intervention of God in impregnating Mary with Jesus. But then we also, once again, we see God step in in a way that only he can, beginning in verse 20. But as he considered these things, that's Joseph. He's working through what to do in light of all the things that he knows says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is perplexed. And Matthew tells us that he's pondering all these things. He's working through them. He doesn't desire to put her to shame, but he's still trying to sort through this. Literally, we read here that he is so physically exhausted from navigating the situation that he falls asleep. And it's when he falls asleep that an angel of the Lord, once again, steps in and intervenes. And in this particular intervention, the angel not only gives instruction to Joseph, but he also gives direction to the events that are unfolding before Joseph. So Joseph, here's what you're going to do, all right? But also, here's what's happening. I I, I don't know if you're like me, but lots of times I want to know why what's happening is happening. It's great if you could tell me what to do or how I should respond in the light of the situation, but it sure is great to know why things are happening. And God, he provides that for Joseph. And what is the instruction that he gives? He says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child is that of the Holy Spirit. And so he instructs him, take Mary to be your wife. And he says, you're going to take her to be your wife And then the directions of the events or what is to happen, he also tells Joseph. She will give birth, and the child will be a fulfillment of what God had spoken through the prophet. Here Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 7. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7, 14. Now, again, remember, Matthew was writing for what reason? He's writing to demonstrate to a Jewish audience that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. Or, you know, as he's writing, obviously, after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's writing to, to encourage these Jews to know and understand and to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So as he starts writing this, he gives the genealogy of Jesus, and then he starts using Old Testament prophecy that we're about the coming Messiah. And he's telling Joseph, the angel is like, look, these are some of the particulars about the birth of the Messiah who will come. And here's what you need to know, is what he tells him. And he walks through this. Reason we see also, Joseph is referred to as the son of David, is that he's being tied to the preceding genealogy of chapter 1. And the roots of Jewish lineage, right? Again, it's all about demonstrating that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so he gets to reference prophecy and draw the Jewish readers back to what God had spoken previously and show them how Jesus was a fulfillment. He goes on to tell Joseph, the angel does, that the virgin will bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not the literal name of the baby to be born. It, is, uh, it, it speaks to the fact that God will in the flesh dwell amongst his people. God with us, Emmanuel. Because the angel tells Joseph what his given name will be. The baby will be born and you shall name him Jesus. This is a symbolic hope for the anticipated Lord's sending of a deliverer. People would name their kids Jesus for this reason, right? But this deliverer, this Savior who would become and would be called Jesus, was not a political Savior. He was not coming to redeem the Jews from the oppression of Rome. Matthew records for us that the angel tells Joseph they will call him Jesus, and he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. Not a political savior, a spiritual savior. And this too is a repeated, is a fulfillment of a repeated Old Testament promise that God would save people from their sins. And after this dream, Joseph wakes up and does what the angel commanded him. Right, so for me, it's kind of like last week. You remember we talked about Zechariah, he went in the temple, he made the offering, and then it says, and then he went home. <laughs> it's kind of the same way today, right? Like Joseph, he has this dream, he wakes up, and then he did what the angel said. He took Mary to be his wife. And there's another detail I would submit to you that Matthew gives us that is vitally important. He says he took, him, he took Mary to be his wife, but he did not know her until after the baby was born. Okay, so again, I want to I kind of draw back from what we talked about earlier. He took this woman out to be his wife. In essence, what he did was he ended the betrothal period and, 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 and enacted the wedding or the, the, the marriage now. And he took with it all the things we've talked about, like the, the shame and the scorn. Because look, there's a few things we've got to... If somebody came to you today and said, I am a virgin, I have never had physical intercourse, and I am with child, what would your reaction be? Yeah, right. Like, let's just, let's be, I'm not trying to be facetious. And that's exactly what happens here. 
And yet, after Joseph is visited by the angel of the Lord, all of the shame and mockery and scorn that would come with taking a woman to be your wife who was already with child, and you're like telling people, that ain't my child. That's the child of the Holy Spirit. Come on, Joseph. Be real, dude. Right? Is this, it's not a far-fetched idea to think that this is how people would function. This is how people would engage what's taking place before them. And yet we see Joseph defy logic. We see Joseph act outside of what you and I or him or the Jewish community in the first century can understand on human reasoning and logic. And he takes Mary to be his wife. But he did not know her physically. This is important because if Joseph and Mary had come together physically once he took her to be his wife, then, then the, the Savior, Jesus, would not have been born of a virgin. He would have been conceived by a virgin, but he would not have been born by a virgin. The prophecy would have been, I mean, nullified. I know we look at this from this side of history, and we understand, and we know what transpired, and whenever you think about a prophecy being nullified, maybe you're like me, and you think, well, I wonder what would have happened. People say, you know, like you might hear Jesus talk about wanting to bring the kingdom and the Jews rejected him and so they crucified him. And people say, well, what if they would have accepted Jesus? I don't know. We don't have to get too caught up in that because they didn't, right? But Joseph is obedient and he takes Mary. And any, any physical act would have violated this virgin having uh, a child and that child being qualified to fill not only the lineage of the Jewish descent, the line of David, but to be qualified to forgive sin. So they remain celibate, a baby is born, and they name him Jesus. Now this was a fly-by look in Matthew's accounting of how Jesus came to be and the response of those involved. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph, I want you to understand, a person seemingly of insignificance. He was just a Jewish carpenter. He was not a special person in Jewish culture or society. But even in his insignificance, even in his regular everyday run-of-the-mill carpentry work, dude, guy stuff, he demonstrates tremendous faith and trust in God. And much like I told you last week when we looked at Zechariah, the, the point of the passage of Luke 1 is not be like Zechariah, right? And the point of Matthew 1 in examining Joseph is not be like Joseph. The point of Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25 is the supernatural intervention of God to redeem sinful man from their sin and their, their alienated, separated state from him through his intervention of a virgin having a baby and calling him Jesus. That's the point of Matthew 1. Not be like Joseph, but anytime we look at God's word, anytime we examine a narrative, there are lessons to be learned. We can glean information from this narrative or we can glean application and say, here's what transpired. And though we don't want to just boil it down to be like Joseph, because that's not the point, we can learn from Joseph. But as we learn from Joseph, understand and be reminded the point of the passage is the supernatural intervention of God in redeeming sinful man through an immaculate birth. Number one, I'm going to give you a few things. God is not limited to what we can comprehend, but he will never contradict his word. 
as we've alluded to, there are so many things in this text that are absolutely supernatural. And supernatural is outside of um, the, the ability to, to rationalize or to reconcile within our logic or reason. Mary with child as a virgin. Mary with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel appearing to a man named Joseph. And if that's not supernatural enough, the baby that's to be born is going to live a perfect life and he's going to be crucified, though he deserved not to be crucified, for the very purpose of redeeming sinful man. And after they crucify him, he's going to come back to life. And after he comes back to life, he's going to appear to all kinds of people in Jerusalem. And then he's going to meet with his disciples on top of a mountain in his resurrected form. And then he's going to ascend into the clouds. And one day he's coming again. There's so much supernatural in Matthew chapter 1. I cannot explain to you how it is that God made a dead man alive. And consequently, you can't explain it to me either. But God is not limited to what you and I can comprehend. Does the things that we see here in Matthew 1 and, and, and the, the, the playing out of Matthew 1, do they make sense to you? Do they make sense to me? I mean, not entirely, I guess, but it's okay, right? Because the essence of being made right with God is, is called faith. It's believing that which you don't see. I never saw Jesus. I didn't see the holes in his hands. I didn't see his pierced side. I didn't see the marks from where the, the crown of thorns was jammed onto his head. That doesn't mean I don't believe it. Because God demonstrates who he is all through his word. He demonstrates why Christ came. He demonstrates why we can trust that, why we can believe in that, why we can follow that. I'm going to tell you something. As much as I say we don't always understand everything, following Christ is not blind faith. I would submit to you this morning, it takes more faith to believe that you're an accident than it does to believe that you were created with a purpose by a creative designer. Okay? I don't care what you believe, you have faith. It's just a matter of what the object of your faith is. Okay? And so God works in ways that we don't always understand. And that's okay because God has called mankind, God has called his people to trust him, not always understand. He doesn't say, come to me and I will explain everything to you. Come to me and I will make known that which you don't understand. No, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Trust me. Bob Benson, I have no idea who Bob Benson is, but this quote was spot on. Bob Benson says, when life caves in, that's a fair assessment of what transpired with Joseph, I would say. When life caves in, you don't need reasons. You need comfort. You do not need some answers. You need someone. Jesus does not come to us with an explanation. He comes to us with his presence. You see, God is offering his comfort in the completed work of the baby who would be born of a virgin. 
And this is more needed than logical understanding or reason. We, as much as we talk about Christmas, and we say, sometimes I think we have it backwards. We should spend one day talking about the birth of Jesus and every other Sunday talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the death of Jesus because Jesus was born to die. That's the whole essence of all of the Old Testament prophecies, that God would send one to redeem sinful man and that, that that redemption will take place through the willful giving of his own life. If Christ doesn't die and then is not raised, Paul tells us very eloquently in 1 Corinthians 15, we're still dead in our sins. It's not just about the birth of Jesus. It's about what the birth of Jesus represents. I don't understand how a virgin gets pregnant. I don't understand how a virgin has a baby. I don't understand why God becomes flesh. I don't understand why an innocent man took my place and was crucified, beaten, mocked, scorned. I don't understand those things. But God's word says you don't have to understand all those things. You just have to trust me. You have to believe that I am who I say that I am. And when, listen, I want you to understand something. We talk about our world caving in around us, as Bob, Bob, Bob Benson puts it, right? When our world caves in, this is the reality. And our world caving in is not limited to big catastrophic events in our lives. We talk about needing comfort over reason. Man, sometimes that's day-to-day life. What some of us need day in and day out is the comfort of knowing that God has promised his presence in Jesus, not an understanding of how to reconcile a dead man becoming alive. We need the comfort and the promise of the presence of God. And maybe today we ought to, we ought to trust instead of seek answers. Secondly, we must be willing to listen if we're to hear right? If you're not willing to listen, you won't hear. A lot of things can happen. A lot of things can go wrong. Catastrophe can come in. Your world can cave in, as Bob Benson put it. But if you're not willing to listen, you won't hear. And y'all ever raised any kids? I'm like, good grief, girls. Sometimes I feel like a broken record. I drive a school bus and my primary stop is a daycare. Ugh. You ever dealt with kids who don't listen? If we are going to hear, we must listen. We stay, let's be honest, we stay so bogged down and busy in our lives that we often fail to hear from God. It's not like it was in the Old Testament, right? God is not sending angels to us to communicate to us in our dreams. God is not sending prophets in the sense that we have people standing on corners, right, you know, proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, judgment is coming, maybe we need that. But God functions a little differently in this period of history. Because we don't need prophets to stand on the corners, We don't need angels to appear to us in our dream because God has spoken. And many of us don't hear because we're not listening. God has revealed everything that we need to know right here. And sometimes our world caves in because we're not hearing because we're not listening. 
We don't listen. We don't hear. And then we can't figure out why, you know, things are caving in around us. We just got to avail ourselves to what he's revealed. I told you earlier, right? Like we live in a world where everybody's got the mystery and the key to something. Seeking to understand complex matters of God's word, attempting to handle matters of prophecy, for example. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue the understanding of prophecy. The Bible tells us that there's a great blessing to be had when we understand and when we study prophecy. But it's amazing to me how many people want to understand the book of Revelation but won't read the book of 1 Corinthians. Because, see, the book of 1 Corinthians is about the church. The book of 1 Corinthians is, is, is about practical, day-to-day, living out our faith and following Christ. But the book of Revelation, depending on your eschatology, the book of Revelation is about all the people who are going to suffer when the church is gone. That's a whole lot easier to read about, isn't it? Now, don't hear me say you shouldn't try to understand the book of Revelation. But if you've raised kids, or maybe you're currently raising kids, and your kids don't have teeth, you don't give them steak, you give them milk. And the writer of Hebrews literally says that about believers. He says, I, I want to tell you more about this, but I can't. Because though you should be eating food, you're still drinking milk. And some of us are trying to eat steak, and we can't even drink milk. Or we don't drink milk. Right? So we have to be willing to listen. You want to understand complex matters of God's word? Then start by understanding the clear, plain, and simple. Prophecy's hard. Start with do this and don't do that. And once you got that mastered, then move on to prophecy. Read his word. Know his word. And in turn, know him. And as you do this, he will give understanding and knowledge. Right? And then so we're hearing, we're listening, and we're hearing. He, he gives this understanding, he gives this knowledge for a purpose. The purpose is obedience. God has not spoken and revealed to us his expectations through his word because he was bored. Uh, I got nothing to do, so <clears throat> I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to guide some men under the inspiration to <clears throat> pen what we'll call the word of God. The purpose of listening, the purpose of hearing God's word is to obey it. We listen and God gives insight and knowledge and he expects obedience. Again, I know we live in a world where many people think, oh, God doesn't expect anything because God is love and he just wants me to be happy. I'm not trying to be facetious when I say that. I'm saying the God of the universe has spoken. And it doesn't matter if I like what he said or didn't say. What matters is that if he's spoken it, I'm called to obey it. Now, we've got to work those things out sometimes practically, but we don't get to neglect that which we don't like. Oh, I heard what you said, God, right? Joseph was a just man. What a way to be regarded. Joseph was a just man. You know why he's regarded as, regarded as a just man? Simply it means he obeyed God. He obeyed God. And praise God that Joseph was a just man. As we hear and listen, we need to be obedient. I came across a story about a jogger named Jack. As Jack passed a cliff, he got a little too close to the edge and suddenly found himself falling. On the way down, he managed to grab a branch, nearly yanking it out of the cliff. When he caught his breath, he realized what a terrible jam he was in. 
He couldn't get up, and letting go certainly seemed to be a poor option. So he began to scream, Hello up there! Can anyone hear me? In a moment, a voice returned. Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you from down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you? And where are you? I'm the Lord, Jack, and I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? That's me. God, help me. I promise if you get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person and serve you for the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. First, let's get you down, and then we can discuss that. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do, okay? Okay. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me. Let go. There was a long pause as Jack thought of the offer. In a moment, however, Jack let out a loud yell. Hello? Hello? Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) Obedience is the expectation. Even if it's scary, even if it's difficult, even if you don't understand it. And then lastly, failing to obey is always catastrophic. It's always catastrophic. When we neglect what God has revealed in his word, the results are never good. The circumstances of our lives would be so much different had Joseph went another way. And our lives are often very difficult because you and I go other ways. We function according to what we understand, what we think, what we like. We make decisions based on what we think are going to bring the most satisfaction or the most pleasure, pleasurable or the most ideal or that which are the most easy to comprehend. And when we do that, our lives become difficult. But praise God that he's promised his presence. Praise God that he's promised his comfort from his presence, especially when we don't understand. If you've not encountered things you don't understand, you will. And the call of God's word, even in times of a lacking of understanding, is to trust him, even if it doesn't make sense. So I want to remind you, you're listening for what is important to you. You're listening for that which is important to you. Is what God has declared important to you? Do you desire to trust him. And that may not mean that you are fully trusting him. That may mean that you literally, you might need to pray, God, help me trust you. But he won't just give you trust. (laughs) It's kind of the irony of it. He puts you in situations to trust him. And as you trust him, you in turn know him and experience his presence and comfort according to his promises. Joseph didn't know or fully understand, but he took God at his word and found God to be faithful to his promise. Joseph was a man of insignificance, but he trusted God and he saw that God was faithful. 